Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So good news, we got all the hornets out of our RV. (laughs) That's nice. Because we had a lot of work to finish up on the inside and neither one of us wanted to go in there. We we actually have a carpet guy coming to put uh, new carpet in the bedroom and finish uh, remodeling the inside and just in time to sell it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know... Plans change. Things change. You move on. And I have to say that I have enjoyed, like I did the backsplash in mm, there, yep. and that looks really nice, yep. I think, mm-hmm. and I enjoy doing it. I did most of the flooring in there. Right. I love it how that came out. Yep. I'm not sad about it. I think there's a couple of issues. Number one, it's it's really big. It is very big. And that makes you nervous and you don't want to drive it. It's like a 36-foot Class A motor coach. Right. And it's just the two of us. Right. So I would have to do all the driving. That's correct. And and number two, I think we're just at a point in our life now where we're downsizing. That's right. We're just getting rid of stuff. So, so I guess that makes sense. If you need a, an RV, <laughs> <laughs> I think my point here is yeah. buy the RV. Yeah, you want to buy. <laughs> we're joking about it, but hey, if you do. Uh, right. Three slides, two bathrooms. Yeah, 36 foot. Uh, it's a V10 gas uh, <laughs> Fleetwood Bounder 2011 with only 16,000 miles. <laughs> Call now. Jesus. It's turned into an infomercial. <laughs> anyway. This deal won't last long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, though. I have so much enjoyed working in it, and I yeah. love a project. So oh, it's, it's been a been lot fun. of fun. It has been a lot of fun. I don't regret buying it. It's just like you say, things change, yeah. and yeah, it's one of those things. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I think maybe we should uh, do a story. How about you start us off? All right. This story begins in 1756. It's in February in the midst of the French and Indian War. Local lore tells that the Blue Mountains in Pennsylvania were sacred to the Lenape Native Americans. 
Early one morning, a group of Lenape emerged from the forests. Allied with the French, they were intending to drive out the colonial families living on the frontier. And who can blame them? An account of the attack was documented in a letter from Jean Probst to Jacob Levin. He wrote that, quote unquote, the Indians attacked Frederick Reichdorfer as he was feeding his horses. Mm. But he was able to escape and ran toward the neighbor's home, Jacob Gerhardt. His plan was to get the neighboring people together with their guns and and fight them off. Kind of a form of a, a quick militia. Sure. When he came nearer to Gerhardt's, he heard a lamentable cry, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, which, according to him, made him run back toward his own home. But before he got there, he saw his house and his stables were in flames. Everything was destroyed. His children were murdered. And over at Jacob Gerhardt's house, they'd killed one man, two women, and six children. One child escaped. This orphan child Jacob Gerhardt. He stayed in the area, and he grew up under the care of another family. Eventually, he settled in the mountains and built a house made of sandstone on the property. That was in 1793. The building was located within the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary on a ridge in the Blue Mountains. There was a popular route that took travelers over the Blue Mountains into the neighboring county. He established it as a tavern for peddlers and other traveling to and across the unsettled north. We don't use the word peddlers enough. We don't. Anymore. I agree. This is according to Hagenbach.org. This building is also located along the migratory path for many birds of prey and provides spectacular views of hawks soaring through the air. It also happens to overlook the spot where a young Jacob watched the gruesome murder of his parents and siblings. Oh, man. Jacob was described as never being quite right. Well, that's understandable. Absolutely. After his death in the early 1800s, George and Priscilla Bollock bought the property and used the house once again as a tavern. And indeed, the, the place was perfect for travelers making their way over the summit of the mountain. In 1850, Matthias and Margaret Schombach came across the property, and Matthias purchased it. According to Hawks Aloft by Maurice Brown, he described Schombach as being of medium stature, lean, but unusually strong, and definitely the silent type of scoundrel. And although the Schombach's grim appearance scared nearby children... <laughs> Brown wrote that the wife was just the opposite. She was even-tempered and liked by all. <clears throat> yeah, it's tough when you move into a new neighborhood and you learn that you're scaring the children. Right. And people immediately referred to you as a scoundrel. Well, stories began circulating. Uh-oh. Were they cannibals? Salesmen and others who were traveling through the area who reportedly had stopped at the tavern. Peddlers? Peddlers were going missing. Oh, okay. All right. Rumors started to circulate about travelers who mysteriously disappeared after heading up the mountain and staying at the Schombox Tavern. Some told of how Matthias plied guests with food and drink until they could no longer stay awake. And then once in a deep sleep, he would murder them. One of the first stories came from a man who claimed his father had visited Schombach's Tavern. During a terrible thunderstorm. Now, I do want to point out that some refer to it as Schombach's Tavern. Some refer to it as Schombacher's Tavern. All right. But we're going to go with Schombach. Uh, and also, I looked it up, and it's Schombach. Bach. But, 
my throat can't handle doing that over and over again, so I'm not going to. Well, you need to take care of your throat. After knocking on the door, this traveler was greeted by a grim-looking Matthias who pointed out the barn where the horses could be stabled. As he approached the barn, the horses became spooked and reared up in terror. The impatient man threw down the reins and entered the barn himself. There, he said, he saw traces of fresh blood spattered about. The man decided he was better off continuing through the storm (laughs) than spending the night in that tavern. Yeah, good call. That's one smart peddler. Wait, was he a peddler? I don't think he was a peddler. It's hard to say. It was said that Matthias had a system to dispose of the bodies. He would first hack them apart. Some pieces were dumped into an old well, while others were strewn in the forest for animals to clean. Do we know why he was doing this? Was he robbing these people first and then uh, and then murdering them to get away with it? Or was he just enjoying the butchering of humanity? Well, that's the thing. Again, rumors were that it was for profit, that he would rob them and then sell their their items. I see. Um, it was also local lore that he was just off. And that it wasn't just Matthias and Margaret that were off, that it was the property. That Jacob Gerhardt's having built that property overlooking uh, his gruesome childhood memories and his being never quite right built a... Environment of unsettled nature. Okay, so so bad mojo. There was yes, yes. Thank you. So concise. Now, don't forget, this was a perfect spot for migratory birds of prey to whoop whoop. Oh yeah. Uh, so there, the the idea was okay. Well, he strewn these body parts about, and the the birds would pick and and eat and all that. I see. According to one story, a traveler stopped in and was served a meal of so-called old German sausage. The traveler found that the food didn't taste quite right. No. And then he realized that there were no pigs or livestock on the property. This tastes like peddler. <laughs> now, there's nothing that backs up the the idea that these tavern owners were serving people to their neighbors. However, this was one story being told about the terrible nature of this tavern. Now, speculation grew as Schombach would bring clothing and other items to the town to sell. Days after a merchant selling Civil War uniforms disappeared, Schombach was seen trying to sell similar items at the town stalls, or however they did it, I don't know. The merchant was last seen at the tavern. Now, that story was related by Maurice Brown, who actually lived in the tavern, which might have been a tad unsettling, I would think. (laughs) Lore had it that Matthias killed at least 11 travelers. It does not appear as though there are any court documents indicating legal action was ever taken against Schombach. And you know how small towns can sometimes be. And if someone's maybe a little off or a little weird or Mm -hmm. there's a legend connected to a region, you know, rumors can flurry about. Also, traveling salesmen, it's a dangerous job. You know, you're in, you're out. It's it's hard to keep track of those who travel for a living. Schombach died in 1879 at the age of 55 after what is described as having suffered a mental breakdown. 
Even his death was surrounded by rumors. One tells of how Matthias made deathbed confessions of his murders. He claimed that an evil spirit within the mountains whispered to him day and night, encouraging him to act on murderous impulses. Now, this is according to the website Hagenbach.org. And while I'm at it, I got other information from themorningcall.com and a lovely blog on Tumblr. There were also rumors of lightning striking nearby as he was being lowered into his grave. That's ominous. Mm. William Turner and his wife and eight children were the next inhabitants of the house. Like Schombach, they maintained the tavern business. And Judy Wink, chief naturalist at the Carbon County Environmental Education Center, who was friends with Maurice Brown, said the former curator told her that... Brown had found old records in the tavern. It's said that the Turners, the new owners of the tavern, found human remains in three wells on the property. So I'm guessing not only did the sausage taste taste funny, but but the water probably as well. It seems really counterintuitive mm. to do that, but there was even more support for the claims outside the hedgerow behind the house. Maurice said that he found some kind of bones on the property, which they believed to be parts of skeletons uh, that, that looked at like they had been picked over by the local wildlife. So though no legal action was taken against Schombach, and it looks like the bulk of this is just from stories of people who lived at the tavern or lived nearby to the tavern, the legend lives on. Jim Brett, who is a curator for Hawk Mountain and wrote the book, The Mountain and Migration, said that on misty evenings, Schombach's presence is strongly felt in and around the Mountain Hotel, and that weird things still happen within that region. Is the building still standing? Is it is it operating, or has it been long since? It is still standing. It is part of the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. Cool. And it is referred to in several articles as the old hotel. Whether or not it's still being used as a stop for uh, travelers, I don't know. But I certainly know that it is, according to locals, haunted. Unexplained things happen. Things move about. Screams from wells. So on and so forth. No way. I mean, I wanted to go immediately when you started talking about this just for historical <laughs> reasons right but now you throw in poltergeist activity i'm in it's one of those places um the, in the photos that i've seen it's small salt box style buildings that's about 18 inches from the roadway sure yeah, you know right. uh, you can picture someone leaning their bike up against the, <laughs> the front of the building um, but yeah it is um, unknown if the legends of the murders are true but it is still understood to be a <clears throat> wicked creepy place wicked creepy place yeah well i can see where a lot of that could have been just developed through urban legend right. you know being a small town area kind mm -hmm. of rural sure. and um and if Jacob Gerhardt was considered never having been right, you know, yeah, after yeah. seeing his family murdered. People in small towns have their own way of doing and describing exactly. things. Like, this is, this is we're in Maine, you, you know that, and it's a fairly rural state, especially the further north you go. Mm. 
And there is a small city in northern Maine called Presque Isle. Mm. It's, uh, you know, it's a big town. It's not really a city. It's a big town. But they had an active shooter situation there yeah. this week, yep. and which is just flipping unheard, unheard of. Unheard of. And the police put out a statement that's, and this is this is so cool I for, can read it for a you. small town, how they handled this particular situation. So I went to the uh, Presque Isle Police Department Facebook page. It was probably like four hours after the incident had started, hoping that there would be an update. Right. And there was. <clears throat> Due to the strong wind and the active situation currently in Presque Isle, <laughs> we will be canceling tonight's movie in the park. <laughs> the strong winds got top billing over active shooter. <laughs> I love small towns. That's amazing. And now, that thing in the middle. Thing in the middle this time comes from our uh, freaks, a Facebook group. Uh, Olivia posed this question. I know I'm not the only person who would love to have an option of a subscription box of oddities. Uh, what would be some of the items you'd find inside the box of oddities subscription box? Number five. Shannon suggests weird foods, good luck charms, cryptid action figures, and our very own set of Banjo and Willie dolls. Number four, Peter writes, one box of oddities could have a simple mirror glued to the inside of the bottom. <laughs> so when you peer inside the box of oddities, you see the oddest of all, yourself. <laughs> Number three, Olivia chimes back in and says, how about a camper full of bees, perhaps? Um... <laughs> They were hornets, Olivia, but yeah, I get your point. Number two, Mackenzie writes, I just want bones. Any animal, any kind. I just want bones. And number one, a little exchange between Stephen and Sam. Stephen writes, a human thumb. And then you realize it's yours. Spooky. Ooh. Sam says, you check your hands. You see that all your digits are accounted for. Have you not yet lost your thumb? Was this procured from an alternate timeline? That, my friend, is just one of the many mysteries of the Box of Oddities. Stephen responds to Sam, See, that's why we get along. <laughs> this was fun. I actually got several private messages about this particular query. And yes, please, can we have a Box of Oddities <laughs> subscription? And I'm like, I mean, sure, but you're going to end up getting garbage. <laughs> Be like, this is what we have for you today. Yeah. A fig bar, a packet of Dramamine. And some semi-dried up whiteboard markers. That's <laughs> what we have in front of us right now. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So what did we learn this month? Give Kat a compliment or tell Jethro these are difficult times. Either way, someone's getting punched in the throat. This is The Box of Oddities. Simon sent us an email from the UK. Hi, guys. Love the show. Thought you might be interested in this coincidence. I live in Scarborough, UK, on the East Yorkshire coast. I work in construction, and back in August of 2012, my friend and I were working on a house on Royal Crescent that had previously been modified into three flats. We were turning it back into one house again. 
As we tear down the partition wall between a bedroom and a bathroom, I notice something written on the back of a piece of plasterboard. It read, Dave Wright, August 22nd, 1996. I show this to my friend and he immediately goes, I know that guy. We used to call him Wrongy. And uh, he proceeds to call the guy up. The guy answers and tells him that he did the original work to turn the house into flats back in 96. So that evening in the pub, I run into my old Canadian friend, John Monroe, who I've not seen in ages, and start telling him the story. He goes, My first flat was on Royal Crescent when I came to Scarborough in 97, which incidentally was the year that I came to Scarborough from Manchester and met him. He asked me what the number of the place was, but I couldn't remember, so I described where on Royal Crescent it was, and he goes, Did it have a big sticker on the glass of the back door with two Weimaraner dogs? Yes, I exclaim. He had lived in the top floor flat, which was where we found... Wrongy's writing. Oh my goodness. Not only that, but it just happened to be the 22nd of August, exactly 16 years to the day that he wrote that on the plaster wall. Whoa. That's crazy. That is crazy. So my story begins in the early days of World War II. In 1940, Hiro Onoda enlisted in the Japanese army. He trained as both an intelligence officer and a commando. So in 1944, yeah, commando. <laughs> the Americans were getting set to attempt to retake the Philippines, and he was sent to Lubang Island to prepare for this attack. His orders were to destroy the island's airstrip and the docking area. So he goes to Lubang Island. When he gets there, the local higher-ranking officials mm-hmm. overruled him. They said, no, we're not going to do that. And this was a really big factor in the American invasion of Lubang Island in February of uh, 1945, being successful. Eventually, every Japanese soldier on the island was either killed or captured. The only survivors were Anoda and three other men. Now, Anoda was a second lieutenant, so that made him the ranking officer. So it's pretty much just him and three other guys, and he orders the group to retreat into the rugged higher elevations and jungle regions of the island. Now, here's the crucial bit of information. When he received his original orders before he went to the Philippines, he was told by his commanders that surrender or suicide were out of the question. Okay. He took these orders very seriously. Uh, He and his unit continued to launch guerrilla attacks against both American and Filipino forces, engaging in occasional gun battles. And even though the war had ended, they continued to fight on for decades. Did they not know that the war had ended? No, they believed that the war was still being fought and they continued to fight. Anoda continued to fight for 30 years. What? Did no one think to get him a memo or something? They tried. They tried. You see, Allied planes flew over these areas, dropping leaflets. And he actually found some. They all did. Found some on the jungle floor that uh, they'd been dropped from uh, Allied planes. And uh, they were told to stand down. At the same time, when they would forage for food at rural farmhouses, they would come across current newspapers that would also declare the war was over and that Japan had surrendered. But they refused to believe it. They they, they thought as- they were being tricked? Yep. They thought they, they all assumed it was allied propaganda designed, designed to uh, trick them into surrendering. Whoa. And they taught they were taught, remember, that surrendering was the same as desertion. Right. And that they should choose death before dishonor. But yet 
Suicide was not an option either, he was told. Many Japanese hid out in various parts of the Pacific long after the war was concluded, but uh, not as long as these guys. However, one by one, Anoda's compatriots were either killed or surrendered. The first to go just seemed to kind of grow tired of everything. He just, you know, he, he grew weary of the situation and he abandoned the group in 1949. He eventually turned himself into Filipino authorities in 1950. At this point, the authorities in Japan knew that the, somewhere in the Lubang wilderness, there were other soldiers. Attempts sure. were made to encourage the group to give in. These efforts even included them finding out who their families were and getting letters from their families as well as family photos and dropping those by airplane. Again, they considered this to be more war propaganda. So um, I guess my question would be like at what what would it take for you to believe that you could stand down and it was later determined that he was waiting for orders from his commanding officer. Okay. And until he heard from his commanding officer, he didn't believe any of this. But his commanding officer was just done boring. Well, the war, the war so had ended. Yeah. That was it. They that, went home. <laughs> the second guy in his group was eventually killed by gunshot in 1954 by Filipino by Filipino forces who were out searching for the remnants of these Japanese holdouts. Wow. The last of Hiro Onoda's men would survive for another 20 years before being shot to death in 1972 by Filipino uh, police. Whoa. At that point, the two men were on a, quote, mission to destroy crops grown by local farmers. Uh, by this time, Japan had long since declared them dead, but this made them reevaluate the situation. This left just Hiro Onoda, but he continued to fight on well into the 1970s. Onoda routinely shot at patrols that were out searching for him, and he aggressively attacked farmers. He later said, uh, he wrote a memoir, and later he said, I wanted my own territory. To expand, we had to break in the locals. I materialized to destroy things, threatening them, lighting fires in empty houses. Residents were routinely killed, sometimes pretty brutally. Oh, jeez. According to one inhabitant of the island, Quote, the murders always took place when they were farming. One was attacked from behind as he stooped down. The body was found in one place and the head in another. Gosh, that's terrible. A prominent local, Ben Abelita, had this to say, quote, almost every year, usually about harvest time, there was a casualty. That is rough because you, I mean, as far as the farmers are concerned, there is no war. This right. is not something they should have to be worrying about. And I also, I mean, I feel for Anoda because that um, the mental state of being at war for 30 years. Yeah, by yourself for the most part. That's heartbreaking. That's a an entire life yeah. just taken. According to an article in Ranker, he was able to survive for such a long time on a diet of fruits and vegetables that he found in the jungle, typically coconut and bananas. And occasionally um, he'd steal and butcher a cow from one of the uh, local farmers. So he lived on bananas, coconuts and stolen cows. He would enter a, a, an empty house and steal rice and other staples like that. During this time, he had to tolerate extreme jungle heat and humidity, mosquitoes, insects, rats, and, of course, the occasional violent interaction with police or residents. Mm. He had constructed some bamboo huts and somehow kept his weapons and uniform in good condition for 30 years. Wow. 
He continued to believe that any information that he received about Japan, even from his families, was just the result of American propaganda. That is shocking. I got a hole in one of my shirts the other day, and I've had that for like eight months. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. In 1974, a self-proclaimed Japanese hippie named Norio Suzuki <laughs> decided to embark on a mystical journey. He wanted to find three things in this order. Lieutenant Anoda, a panda, and an abominable snowman. I'm on board. So he starts looking for Lieutenant Anoda. And even though authorities had been unable to locate this guy for nearly three decades, it only took Suzuki four days to find him. Anoda recalled later that he was tempted to shoot the stranger, but Suzuki's initial statement gave him pause. He said, Anoda-san, the emperor and the people of Japan are worried about you. He later said in an interview, this hippie boy Suzuki came to the island to listen to the feelings of a Japanese soldier. Suzuki asked me why I would not come out. Anoda explained to Suzuki that he would not leave until officially ordered to do so. He agreed to wait for Suzuki to return with his commanding officer. This is 29 years after the war had ended. Thank you, Japanese hippie. So Japanese hippie Norio Suzuki immediately set out to find Hiro Anoda's commanding officer. 29 years later. I mean, is he even still alive? He was. Really? The commanding officer who had ordered Anoda to continue his mission unconditionally, his name was Major Yoshimi Tanaguchi. He was now a bookseller in a small shop, and he agreed to accompany Suzuki and Anoda's brother back to the Philippines. In Anoda's memoir, No Surrender, My 30-Year War, Anoda described his emotions when he was told to stand down. Quote, I stood still waiting for what was to follow. I felt sure Major Tanaguchi would come up to me and whisper, quote, that was so much talk. I will tell you your real orders later. Major Tanaguchi slowly folded up the order, and for the first time I realized that no subterfuge was involved. It kind of seems like he wanted to still be in this yeah, war. Like he was he actively did. working against yep. information he was getting which doesn't seem healthy to me. He went on to say, this was no trick. Everything I had heard was real. We really lost the war. How could we have been so sloppy? Suddenly, everything went black. Oh, jeez. So even though over the years, Anoda had killed at least seven Filipino citizens, on March 11th, 1974, at a televised ceremony at the Presidential Palace in Manila, Onoda received a full pardon from President Ferdinand Marcos. He was also told that he was welcome to stay in the Philippines. Onoda was dressed in his 30-year-old military uniform, Wow! personally surrendered his military sword to Marcos, and then graciously refused the opportunity to remain in the Philippines, telling him that he admired his courage. Marcos immediately returned Onoda's sword. Onoda followed with a live statement on Filipino television saying, quote, from now on, I will try my best to contribute to the development of my country and the closer cooperation of the Philippines and Japan. Wow. So he goes back to Japan. He was, he was met at the airport like the Beatles, you know. He was greeted by both his parents, cheering, flag-waving crowds, front-page headlines, nonstop media coverage. His decades of deprivation and a commitment to a hopeless mission seemed to strike a chord with people. In fact, one major Japanese newspaper wrote, quote, His task was impossible to achieve, but he did his best. He led a faithful life, true to the orders given him, even in the most severe conditions, 
Even after losing two of his subordinates, Onada was determined, probably due to his soldier spirit, to do his duty. So now he tries to resume his life in Japan, 30 years later. Whoa. And everything's different. Right. You know, I mean, completely. We come home from vacation for two weeks, and I'm like, is this my house? Why does it smell like this? I don't even (laughs) know this place anymore. (laughs) Well, when he left, of course, the emperor was still reigning. They were Mm. under imperial rule. Yeah. And he comes back, and now it's like they're really focused on commercial manufacturing and very materialistic stuff by his um, interpretation. Well, of course he thinks anything's materialistic. He's been living in the woods (laughs) eating coconut and stolen cows. He was so disappointed in modern Japan that he left and moved to Brazil. To live in the woods? Well, no, he had a little ranch there. Oh, that's kind of cute, actually. I guess. And he stayed there for a while until 1980 when he heard about a terrible crime in Japan where a Japanese teenager murdered his own parents. <gasps> so he decided that he had a mission to help Japanese youth better and empower themselves. So he moved back to Japan and he started a nature camp. Oh my gosh, what a treasure. And he just needed a way to continue serving his people. I I love that. I respect that. After returning to Japan in 1984, he opened the Anoda Nature Camp. At this camp, students received uh, wilderness training and encouragement to allow them to achieve mental toughness and self-confidence. He also began to lecture at other schools and universities about his life experience and his beliefs about life and society. Um, He described his camp as a place for seeing the sky, looking at stars, touching nature. I want them to get an idea of what they want to become. I want them to notice the purpose of life early. Now, that's great. He made something really positive out of a a pretty nasty experience, but he remained an unabashed militarist, and he subscribed to the revisionist attitudes and the uh, more conservative Japanese mindset. In his memoir, he stated, quote, History is written by the victors. Since the end of World War II, the Japanese history taught in our schools has been based on a U.S. program to promote war guilt and on left-wing propaganda. I don't blame the United States for this. They wanted a weak Japan, and their mission is accomplished. Japanese educated after the war do not have any confidence in their culture or themselves. Japan was forced to participate in World War II. The ABCD powers, America, Britain, China, and the Dutch East Indies, imposed such strong sanctions on Japan that we had no way to import oil, steel, or anything. We were going to die, or we were going to be invaded and and enslaved. So even though he got on with his life, Mm. he still was fighting that war in his head. Yeah, I mean, uh, that seems completely reasonable. I I can't say I'm ever on board with war. I'm not someone who's like, yay, that's a great idea. Um, (laughs) But I do think that a dedication to helping your people is admirable. And I love that he found a way to help the youth of his country that wasn't murdering farmers. (laughs) Yes. Here, here. I feel really good about that. Here, here, here. That's my point, I guess. Hiro Anoda died in 2014. Wow. At the age of 91. Girl. There you go. Wow. Hiro Anoda. I have to say, I'm embarrassed that uh, you said uh, Ferdinand Marcos. The only reason I know who that is. Imelda Marcos in her shoes. Yep, that's probably the way most people remember the Marcoses. That and all the corruption. Listen, before we wrap up, I I wanted to mention this because you guys uh, are like family to us. 
and we know you love Willie and Banjo. Oh. I didn't tell Kat I was going to bring this up. Um, Willie's not doing well, and difficult decisions are going to have to be made pretty soon. And uh, because we do consider you guys family, we just wanted to let you know. Also, if we miss an episode, you'll know why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We love you guys, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Listen, that is the worst way possible to end an episode. And now I think that we all deserve pug snortles. Um, You owe us that. All right. Come on up here, Willie. And Banjo, up you go. There you go. Willie and Banjo to end the show with. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freaks. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.